Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. One of the distinctives of our church's philosophy of ministry is that we believe that the church gathers to worship God and to build up believers and that it scatters to evangelize. In accord with that philosophy of ministry, we have not designed the worship service according to what we think unbelievers want or what unbelievers are looking for, but according to what we believe God wants, what He's looking for. And He's looking for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Of course, we welcome unbelievers and even invite them to come and to join us here on Sunday mornings. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. But we haven't designed what we do with you primarily in mind. We've designed what we do with God primarily in mind. In other words, the primary functions of the Sunday morning service are the exaltation of God and the edification of the believer. Exaltation of God and the edification of the believer are primarily a function of the church gathered, while evangelism is primarily a function of the church scattered. As you, the church, go into your neighborhoods and into your community and into the marketplace. You take the light of the gospel with you. And you take your changed life with you. A changed life that testifies to the unbelieving world of the transforming power of the gospel. Paul says we are, as Christians, ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And that's Paul's goal in this chapter as well, to encourage every Christian in their various stages and stations of life to live a life that puts the transforming power of the gospel on display before a watching and lost world. So let's look together at our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul continues to write to Titus, exhorting him what is to be the message he shares in the churches around Crete. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its light, for the knowledge it gives us, knowledge of you, knowledge of your gospel, knowledge of your son. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came as the light of the world, who came and called us to be the light of the world. Thank you, Jesus, 
that you demonstrated throughout your life what it is to follow the Father, what it is to be faithful, what it is to be trustworthy. Lord, I pray that we would walk in your steps, in our community, be your ambassadors, represent you well to everyone. Show us the importance of this this morning and continue your work of transformation in us through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The island of Crete, which is where Titus is when Paul writes to him, the island of Crete was a very active slave trading center in the ancient world. Piracy was also very active on the Isle of Crete. And one of the main activities of these pirates was participating in the capture and shipping and sale of slaves. It's likely that Crete had a higher number of slaves per capita than other places. And it was certainly a slave trading center. Now before we go much further... I need to say a little bit here about slavery in the ancient world. We must be careful not to read into the slavery of biblical times with our understanding of the chattel slavery of our own country that was horrifically practiced until it was abolished by the 13th Amendment in 1865. Not until after there was a bloody civil war over the matter. Slavery of biblical times was quite different And frankly, far more humane. First of all, the slavery of the Bible was not based solely on skin color and ethnicity. As the slavery practiced in America was established on that before it was abolished. And unlike the slavery of our own country, which was primarily agricultural and domestic, the slaves of biblical times were tradesmen and teachers and tutors and artisans and businessmen and businesswomen and managers of estates and physicians and household managers. Some slaves even served within the Roman government. Unlike marriage and human government, slavery was never instituted by God. Instead, all slavery is a byproduct of life in a fallen world. Ancient slavery as a social institution developed early on as a result of economic, political, and military realities and pressures. As early as the book of Genesis, we read that Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. While slavery was never instituted by God, given its prevalence in society and in many cases its economic necessity, The Mosaic Law highly regulated slavery for the protection of those who found themselves enslaved. God has a heart for the weak and the vulnerable and those who are under authority and he provides protections for them. We moderns rightly recoil at the thought of slavery. 
whether it's the slavery of indentured servitude, like the kind we often read of in the Bible, or the chattel slavery of the antebellum South. Slavery as an institution, and in all its forms, ultimately falls short of God's design for humanity. For it fails to value the human person as being made in the image of God. It therefore fails to see that all human beings as divine image bearers possess innate dignity and God-given freedoms. Dignity and freedoms which under slavery are necessarily undermined, ignored, or even flatly denied. Having said that, we should be careful to make distinctions between the various kinds of slavery throughout history and avoid conflating them as being all the same thing. All slavery is not the same. The slavery of ancient times was often far more benevolent than the chattel slavery of our own country. In the ancient world, slaves could earn and save money and purchase their own freedom, and many did this. There's evidence that some Christian churches used offerings to purchase the freedom of some of their members. But some slaves preferred the security of service to a benevolent master to the uncertainty of a life of freedom, which could mean starvation. And so they chose to remain as slaves. In fact, one tombstone marking the grave of a slave was inscribed with the words, Slavery was never unkind to me. Ben Witherington, the New Testament scholar, says that some of the most highly educated and brilliant persons of the Roman Empire and some of its best businessmen were or had been slaves. Still, for the most part, slavery in the ancient world was hardly desirable or glorious. Again, Witherington notes that slaves had no legal rights and they were subject to the will and the whims of their master. If you had a good master, a benevolent master, things might go well. If you didn't, things could go very, very poorly. Not only was slavery often a less than desirable situation, but it was also widespread in the first century. The excellent New Testament scholar Karen Jobes states that it is estimated that almost one quarter of the empire's population were slaves. One in four. So if we were living in ancient times, a fourth of you would likely be slaves. In a gathered assembly of a church, it's likely a higher percentage than that. Because it's not many mighty, not many rich, who come to know the Lord, but those who are poor. In some time periods and some cultures, slavery was even more common in the ancient world. According to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, slaves outnumbered free people seven to one. The New Testament never directly calls for the abolition of slavery, that's true, but it does call both slaves and masters to apply the realities of their salvation to their existing social contexts and to be faithful in living out their various roles. 
In fact, the New Testament radically elevated the marginalized classes of the first century, including slaves, women, and wives, pointing to them as fellow image bearers and as being equal in spiritual position and privilege with all other Christians. And that was a radical teaching. It was a truth which, if followed to its logical conclusion, would lead to the abolition of slavery in Christian contexts. While slavery has been abolished in our own country and in many countries around the world, illegal human trafficking still sadly occurs today and oftentimes in appalling numbers. In our own context where slavery has been abolished and made illegal, how are we to apply these instructions about the master-slave relationship? That occurs here in Titus and in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 3 and in 1 Timothy 6 and in 1 Peter 2. It's all over the New Testament. So how do we apply these things? Well, the closest parallel we have today with the ancient slave-master relationship is the employer-employee relationship. And some of you may be tempted this morning to say, yeah, you got that right. I feel like a slave on Monday mornings. Well, there are many ways in which the analogy between these two different relationships breaks down. There are, however, important principles we can learn and apply to our own employment situations, and we'll seek to do that together today from this passage. So I want us to see together six principles for the Christian at work. Six principles for the Christian at work so that we can fulfill God's mission for us in the workplace. God has a mission for you at work. And that mission goes far beyond whatever your job description says. Your mission is a higher mission. Your calling is a higher calling. Yes, you need to fulfill the requirements of your job description, but always realize you work for a higher master you serve a higher end your work matters to God and it matters for eternity as we'll see this morning so six principles for the Christian at work so that we can fulfill God's mission for us in the workplace first principle submit to your employer in everything submit to your employer in everything The Apostle Paul says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Paul begins instruction to this final household group. Paul's been covering all the household groups up to this point. The previous groups had all been classified by age. He began with older men in chapter 2 and verse 1, or chapter 2 and verse 2 rather. And then he moved on to the older women and then the younger women and then the younger men. And then he moves on to this final group which is classified not by age but by social status. It's classified not by being male or female but by social status. Not classified by being old or young but by social status. And so these instructions apply to all who find themselves in this common social circumstance. No matter how old, no matter if you're male or female, if this 
social setting applies to you, then these words apply to you. Bond slaves is the common translation for the Greek word doulos. Bond slaves. What's a bond slave? Well, the word doulos is a word that simply means slave. Bond slaves sort of signifies that this is maybe a different form of slavery than the chattel slavery we're used to in this country. But it also softens the blow a little bit, particularly for the American reader who is more sensitive to the word slave in the first place. But that's what it means. It, it refers to a slave. Someone who is not free in their life. Someone who is under the authority of another. Now elsewhere, in other contexts, Paul addressed both slaves and their masters. But here, Paul only includes instructions to the slaves. Now this could be for a number of reasons. It may be because there was a greater number of slaves in the churches around Crete than there were masters. And so Paul just addressed the larger group here. Or it may have been that these slaves now, having become Christians and having come to learn of their newfound spiritual freedom, they were struggling to now submit to their masters wrongly believing that their spiritual freedom relieved them of their societal obligations. Whatever the reason, Paul focuses his attention here upon the Christian slave. Christian slaves who in this context appear to be serving unbelieving masters. Titus is to urge these Christian slaves to be subject to their masters, to their unbelieving masters. To be subject to is a word that was used of Christian wives back in verse 5 in relationship to their husbands. To be subject to means to be compliant. It means to be obedient. It means to be submissive. It is to recognize that there is an organized authority structure and to place yourself properly within that authority structure. Slaves were not required biblically to obey every master, but rather their own master. And Paul, again, makes that clear here. So the authority relationship with the required call to submission did not extend to all masters, but only to the particular master that the slaves served. But the extent of their subjection beyond that is pretty far ranging. He says be in subjection to their masters in everything. The master was to be obeyed in everything. The only limiting factor is if the master asked the slave to sin or to violate their conscience. In that case, the slave must disobey their master. When authorities, any kind of human authority, tells us to do something that is clearly sin, we must obey God rather than men. So let's apply this to the workplace. As employees, we must recognize that at work, 
We are part of an authority structure and rightly acknowledge our place within that structure. We are to be subject to those who are in authority over us at work. And we are to do what they want us to do. We're to comply with their wishes and to submit ourselves to their authority. This submission has its limits. We're not required to obey those who are not in authority over us. We're not required to obey those who are not our supervisors. We're not required to obey our employers if they ask us to do something that is clearly forbidden by Scripture or that would violate our conscience. In that case, of course, we must obey God rather than men. But make no mistake about it, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, for most of us, is an opportunity to make sure we understand our place at work, that we are people under authority, that we are a people ultimately under the Lord's authority. And we recognize that he has placed us in this situation at this time, at this place, in this authority structure for our good, his purposes, and his glory. And we submit ourselves to the Lord first and to our employers second. That's the first principle. It's getting quiet in here. Number two, second principle, seek to be pleasing to your employer. Seek to be pleasing to your employer. The word Paul uses here is translated as well-pleasing. In every other instance where this word is used, it is used of the Christian being well-pleasing to God, seeking to please the Lord in every respect. Here, however, the Christian slave is to be well-pleasing to his or her master. That the master is pleased with the job the servant is doing. Colossians 3, 22 and 23 expands on this a bit. Paul says there, writing to the Colossian church, he says, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Sound familiar? We just covered that. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So just as you're seeking to please your earthly master you are ultimately seeking to please your heavenly master and your heavenly master is pleased when you serve well your earthly master not with external service as those who merely please men but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord whatever you do do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men Colossians 3 22 through 23 Translating that to our day and our context, the Christian employee is to seek to please the Lord by pleasing their employer. It means that we're to seek to meet their expectations, to do the work assigned to us in the way that is desired by our employer. It 
Now there's something deep within us that doesn't want to do this, right? We want to please ourselves. We want the day to go well for us. We want to do the job the way we want to do it. The way we think it should be done. But we're not the boss. We have an employer. Our task, particularly as Christians, is to subject ourselves to our employer, our earthly authority, and seek to please them. To do the job the way they want it done, when they want it done, how they want it done. So that they view us as an employee who is pleasing. Christian employees to seek to please the Lord by pleasing their employer. So the employer is pleased with our work and pleased with us as an employee. The idea here is that we are to be viewed positively by our employer. That they would be sad. That they would really experience a loss if we left. They're pleased with our work and pleased that we are part of their organization. That's the goal. That's the Christian's goal at work. Third, third principle. Don't be argumentative with your employer. At the end of verse 9, Paul instructs slaves to not be argumentative. It's pretty straightforward. It is what you think it is. It means that the slave is not to talk back. No back talk. This term includes all forms of opposition, both verbal and nonverbal. Prohibition can include, all, can include all kinds of contrariness and stubbornness, including complaining and arguing and whining and showing disrespect, even eye rolling or sighs or Now, of course, there is a place for appealing to your employer in a gentle and respectful way over something that you disagree with or something you think is wrong or is it correct or unjust. The Bible makes provision for us to appeal to the authorities, the human authorities in our life. Whether that authority is in government or in the home or in the workplace... We can always make appeals, respectful, gentle appeals. Sometimes our employers need to hear a different perspective. They may not fully realize how a decision is impacting others or the consequences that may come from this new strategy. So there's a place for a respectful appeal. The Bible makes full allowance for that. But there is no place for the Christian being argumentative or talking back or being obnoxious and disrespectful or participating in gossip sessions or dragging their feet with decisions 
Christian, don't be argumentative with your employer. Fourth, fourth principle. Christian, don't steal from your employer. Now all this seems pretty basic, right? I mean, it seems like this ought to be common knowledge. Well, it's a problem. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. In verse 10, Paul says that slaves are to be urged not to pilfer. To pilfer means to put back for oneself what does not belong to you. It means to skim off the top for yourself. It's referring to any kind of theft or fraud from within. Household slaves were entrusted with their master's assets. And so they might have been tempted at times to take some for themselves. After all, the master has so much. He's not even going to miss this. I'll just take the change that I find in the couch cushions. He'll never know. He'll never miss it. Why not? Call it a tip. Well, the temptation was real then and it's still real today. It's a massive problem. 75% of employees admit to stealing from their employer at least once. Approximately 95% of U.S. businesses are affected by employee theft. Employee theft costs employers up to $50 billion annually. It's estimated that U.S. companies lose 20% of every dollar to workplace fraud and theft. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. You might not be surprised to hear that I've got another song for this. And yes, it's by Johnny Cash. Some of you know where I'm going already. You say, wow, two Johnny Cash references in two weeks in a row. And a banjo. Where's this church going? (laughs) The song is called One Piece at a Time. And it goes a little something like this. Well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on the assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels on Cadillacs. Every day I'd watch them beauties roll by and sometimes I'd hang my head and cry because I always wanted me one that was long and black. One day I devised myself a plan that should be the envy of most any man. I'd sneak it out there, out of there in a lunchbox in my hand. Now getting caught meant getting fired, but I figured I'd have it all by the time I retired. I'd have me a car worth at least a hundred grand. I'm not going to quote the rest of the song. But he figured that General Motors was so big and so wealthy that they wouldn't miss a little part here and there. Just one part a day. As he smuggled it out in his lunchbox. Well, as you might imagine, it took many years to carry all those pieces home. And when he went to put all the pieces together, he found that they didn't fit at all because they were pieces from different model years. 
But with determination and creative engineering, he was able to finally put it all together, even though there were two headlights on the left and only one headlight on the right and only one tail fin. So it was a bit of a Franken car, pieced and patched together. And when asked what year his Cadillac was, he said, well, it's a 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59 automobile. It's a 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70 automobile. And the chorus says, I got it one piece at a time and it, did, and it didn't cost me a dime. Now, it's kind of a silly song. But it's a serious topic and a serious problem. Christian, don't steal from your employer. As an employee, you've been entrusted with much. You will likely have opportunities to take something that doesn't belong to you. Whether it's for some financial gain through fraud or simple theft of office supplies. Christian, don't steal from your employer. This alone will mark you out as different from the world. Fifthly, fifth principle, show yourself to be trustworthy and good. Show yourself to be trustworthy and good. Instead of stealing, the Christian slave was to show all good faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word faith can either mean faith in God or faithfulness, depending on the context. Faithfulness as in trustworthy, someone who's trustworthy. Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 4 2 when he says that the number one job requirement of servants is that they be trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 4 2 in the case moreover it is required of stewards that is household slaves that one be found trustworthy. And I think that's the way Paul's using it here. Faith in the sense of trustworthiness, faithfulness on the job calling Christians to trustworthiness in the workplace, to be an employee who has proven to be trustworthy, to be faithful, to be dependable, to be loyal. But Paul also adds that this trustworthiness and loyalty is to be limited to that which is good. It is a trustworthiness and a loyalty that is bonded together with goodness, with what is good and right and true. In other words, if your employer wants you to lie on a report or help them cover their tracks for some wrongdoing, then that is where your loyalty and your trustworthiness to them must end. Again, in such situations where employers are abusing their authority and doing wrong and asking us to join them in the doing of wrong or in the covering up of of the wrongdoing, then we must obey God rather than men. We're loyal, but we're not blindly loyal. We're trustworthy, but our trustworthiness has a limit. Limited by that which is good, that which is right 
that which is true, that which is well-pleasing to the Lord. Christian employees should be known for being trustworthy, faithful, loyal, and morally good, and above board in all their dealings at work. Sixth, and finally, understand that transformed living at work makes the gospel more attractive. Look at what he says in verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The word Paul uses here for adorn is the Greek word kosmeo. And it's used for the careful arranging and ordering of things. Think of cosmetics and cosmetology. The careful ordering of your face or of your hair to make you look what? Good. Attractive. Pleasing. By the way, you all did a great job this morning. Most of you. (laughs) This word cosmeo, adorn, was used for the arranging of jewels in such a way to show off their full magnificence and brilliance. A jeweler would consider the stone before he set it on the ring to determine the setting which would most display the Jim's glory. If you've ever shopped for a diamond or some other piece of jewelry, you know that you have that they've designed the entire store to showcase the beauty of these precious stones. Special lighting, dark velvet backgrounds to highlight the shimmering radiance and the sparkling glory of these precious stones. That's what our transformed lives do for the gospel. Our transformed lives serve as lights shining on the gospel. They serve as a beautiful backdrop upon which the gospel is laid and all of its glory shimmers forth. Our transformed lives lived out in the context of an unbelieving world give the gospel a backdrop upon which to shine forth all of its glorious beauty. That which Christians are to adorn, Paul says, is the doctrine of God our Savior. What is the doctrine of God our Savior? Well, the answer is embedded in the question. The doctrine of God our Savior is the doctrine of who God is and what He's done to save us. Save us from our sins. Paul's going to elaborate on this doctrine of God, our Savior, in the verses that immediately follow. Look at verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds 
There it is. There's the gospel. That's the doctrine of God our Savior. And it's centered on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave Himself, verse 14, for us in our place. That's the language of substitution. It's the language of sacrifice to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been purified once and for all. We have been declared righteous in the sight of God, justified And through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been and are being sanctified. Made more and more like Christ, and one day we will be wholly sanctified and glorified in heaven. This is the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the doctrine of God our Savior that our lives are to shine forth. To shine a spotlight on the gospel through the way we live, through the decisions we make, by the way we conduct ourselves, by the speech that comes out of our mouth, by the attitudes that we manifest at work. That Christians might rightly adorn this gospel is intended, the intended purpose and result of all the previous instructions. In fact, This is the purpose of all five of the instructions that Paul has shared in this chapter. This is why the old men are to be temperate and dignified and sound in the faith. This is the reason older women are to be reverent in their behavior and not malicious gossips. This is the purpose for which the younger women are to love their husbands and their children, to be sensible and pure. This is why the young men are to be sensible and examples of good deeds. And it's the reason why slaves are to submit themselves to their own masters in everything. These instructions were given to each group in order that each person in their respective callings and stations and situations in life might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Whatever you do, wherever you go, this is your mission to adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. How do I do that? By the way I live. By living differently from the world around me. By loving different things than the world loves. By hating things that the world doesn't hate. Like sin. Like rebellion to God. Chiefly in our own life. And in our own hearts. Beloved, it is all about the gospel. We are to live transformed lives that demonstrate the power of the gospel to change us from the inside out, to give us new desires, new motivations, new life, new behaviors that stand out from the world around us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, we have a mission. We have a job. Come tomorrow morning, when we clock in, when we walk through those doors at the office, we have a job. We have a mission. And it far exceeds the one that's on paper. 
in a file somewhere. It's a job and a mission given to us by the Lord Jesus himself who is our Lord and Savior who has changed us from the inside out and wants us to be his ambassadors wherever we go. The church gathers primarily for worship and edification and the church scatters into the far reaches of the community. Places I'll never go, people I'll never meet, but you will. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal to us, through us, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your plan is marvelous. It's glorious. It's mysterious. It's baffling that you would use us, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would be your witnesses, and that one of the primary ways we testify to the realities of the gospel is through a changed, transformed life. Forgive us, Lord, for acting so much like the old self, like the world, for not submitting to our earthly authorities, to our employers, to grumbling and complaining and being argumentative, not pleasing them, wanting to please ourselves and do it our way. Forgive us, Lord, if we've stolen resources or time from our employers. Lord, help us to realize that we are a testimony of the gospel. That the light of the gospel is to shine forth in the way we conduct ourselves day after day in a dark world. Help us to be the light of the world to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said.